Hello and welcome to episode 257 of The Crate and Crowbar. It is the 3rd of October 2018. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. 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 <laughs> Mine is less fruity. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, uh, that hello went places. I'm in a, came back again. I'm in a very good mood today. Good. I don't even know what. You know, suppose you wake up and you just feel brilliant. Yeah. It's been like that all day. It's great. I've had wow. that because of autumn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel that way at this time of year. Something about oh, summer thing. dying. That yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the death of joy. And those fucking leaves. Delicious. Thank God they're off their bullshit. No, seriously. I don't... I don't <laughs> I don't know if it's like reverse sad or just enjoying change or something, but like mm. genuinely it's like, yeah, finally. Yeah. <laughs> I can wear the clothes I actually like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can, I can walk places like, and it, I don't get sweaty. Yeah. That, that's my big thing. Like we had the, a big kind of heat wave earlier in the year in the UK. And by heat wave, I mean, this is very contextual. Like it's a heat wave by the UK standards. Yeah. And, uh, obviously like other countries will rightly make fun of us for this, but I was fantasizing about wearing togas. Just, you know, some <laughs> loose linen, you know, something, something just air yourself out. Yeah. That's all I wanted. But I had to wear, I had to buy shorts. I hate wearing shorts oh, more than yeah, anything. Um, because they make me look like a, a wee boy. And, um, and, yeah. uh, and yet I had to, to Sad survive to. so that my legs to didn't live. <laughs> so my legs didn't die and <laughs> to fall live off. and play games. Exactly. Uh, but no, it's great this time of year. Yeah, I suddenly feel so much more alive. Autumn is the best. I think it's because you know the, the winter's coming, uh, which, and, and that's when you get to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we all hibernate on the great crowbar i don't think we really <laughs> yeah well for that two weeks we take off yeah yeah good um well uh, and the uh more pressing than than winter is the encroaching uh cowboy apocalypse which threatens to consume all games Red- right dead redemption <laughs> yeah it's it's coming uh yeah. and it will eat all games websites <laughs> <laughs> it will and the release schedule entirely everything else is gonna yeah. not want to be around it not because it smells because it's too beautiful <laughs> Uh, I'm, Does I'm look nice. Softly excited about it, but like, I, th- I know I'm going to love it. But there's nothing about it on the outside that makes me understand why. I'm particularly excited about the online mode. Actually, I think that mm, like, yeah, possibly with like some friends just riding across. There, well, it's going to be an enormous, beautiful open world, isn't it? Whatever happens, Rockstar are very good at that. And I probably won't get into the story. Nothing about the story interests me. But the idea yeah. of getting together with some friends and doing some train robberies and stuff is sort of the best thing ever. They, in the latest trailer, they're all going on about, um, uh, sort of this, they just say the same thing like 19 times, mm. which is, there's lots to do everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, there's lots to do. <laughs> Wherever you go, there's lots to do there. And all their examples, well, not all their examples, but a lot of their examples are just like, the, the main character walks forwards and then some people like jump in front of him and do a kind of movie scene. <laughs> right, <laughs> With yeah. very exaggerated accents. And uh every time that happened, I kind of like cringed because I was like, oh... I don't mind watching it now, but like when I'm in game, I'm going to just be pissed off that they're talking yeah. to me. And I it wanna... looked as though they were trying to, fr- so they were talking about these cutscenes that could sort of happen around you dynamically and you sort of wander into them. It becomes a cutscene and then seamlessly goes back out into the world. Yeah, that could be nice. Which I, could I be- like that back out in the world thing. <laughs> <laughs> just pivot 180. <laughs> I like the idea of, um, the coming, yeah, the coming out part. But at the same time, isn't this like the worst thing that <laughs> games do to you? Like, it's the bit where you walk through a door and a first person shooter. Is it not and a quick time event? Exactly. Like, is it not just the thing that we've hated about cutscenes forever that you think you're in control and suddenly, you know, fuck you, we're going to show you a movie now? Like, isn't, I mean, I don't know, we'll wait and see, I suppose. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Because no one really knows anything. People who've played it seem to think it's nice. Yeah. And I imagine it is, because Rockstar don't do I mean, things by nice. halves. It'll be nice. Um, you will be, yeah. I think, um, I mean, maybe this will move on to like, uh, the, I realized this week that I really want to play 
Assassin's Creed, actually. Oh, yes. Mm. And because it, it just looks really nice and I kind of into all of the things it's doing. Mm. And I really still want to play Spider-Man, which I haven't started oh, or I played. Spider-Man so much. And when I got that feeling that like, oh, I want to play Spider-Man, I, I, I guiltily made myself go back to Horizon, which I appreciate it's not a PC game, but it's like, at this point, the backlog of open world games is, is so vast mm. that I actually need a policy change. Like I need to either make my peace with the fact that like the 12 hours of these games that I will happily play is what I'm getting for my money. Mm. And the rest of it is just a sort of like guilt box. <laughs> that you know, And I think this is like, this is not to poo-poo games being long, you know, at all. Like I don't really get into the, that, you know, I think there's been quite a few hot takes to that regard, uh, regarding Assassin's Creed this week. <laughs> it's more to say that like, I kind of like, I, I know now I know something about myself, which is that like, I'm going to get like 12, 15 hours out of any of these games, I think. Hmm. And so it's about like picking which, which 12, 15 hours you want to have. And that can feel weirdly, tremendously mm. wasteful when you're playing, paying full price for something that somebody else, uh, spent millions and millions rendering to an extent I will never see. Mm. And I do wonder, I guess, somewhat about like, so I think thing one is, is I need to simply make my peace with one side of this. Either I am squandering someone else's investment in making a horse I will never see. Mm. There's over a hill I will never go to. Um, which I think is the last line from the great Gatsby. And, um, and also simply like the sort of the, the sense of guilt I feel that's sort of not engaging fully with entertainment that I've bought before moving on to the next thing. Mm. It's difficult. I don't, I don't really know how to, how to exist anymore. <laughs> Thanks to open world games. I had to think about this when, um, I got to preview Skyrim for like, I think it was like four hours. So I had four hours of Skyrim and it's basically the finished game. Um, and so I had to figure out like, you know, this is the last game you want to play under time pressure already. Um, but it's a good amount of time. Um, and I decided like, I'm just going to play this like I would play it, which is to say, I'm going to just walk in a random direction and see what happens. I'm not going to try and follow the story. I'm not going to try and like milk it for all of its, um, narrative content, you know, uh, to write up about. Um, and that worked really well. Like just when you have limited time with something, just do the thing, do the part that you actually care about and, mm. Don't feel bad about missing the rest. I think it's hard to tell when you start an open world game, like to what extent it's systems and combat and just the general sort of motor stuff is actually going to be interesting 15 hours in or 50 hours in. And the, the one thing I'd say about Horizon Zero Dawn in particular is that I really enjoyed its combat until the very, very end because you're fighting new weird robots all the time. And Do you mean you liked it all the way through or you hated it at the very end? No, no, I liked it. <laughs> sorry, I liked it all the way through. Right. I think that it sustained that interest, mm. the mechanical interest. Um, whereas something like, for example, Skyrim, I don't think does. I, I love Skyrim yeah. so much. I love the atmosphere, but you know, there's not much kind of uh, skill going into the first person combat. Once you've researched some spells, it's just like hold down a mouse button to do them. Um, but I think Horizon Zero Dawn particularly has mm. uh, a lot of, you know, a lot going on with its enemy design and, and with uh, the big boss fights and stuff like that. And I'd, I'd extend this to stuff like um, Dragon Age Inquisition with its dragon fights and things like that. Yeah. So uh, the, there are open world games where the mechanics sustain the length of it, but a lot of them don't. Mm. And that I would even say that about something like Zelda. Which yeah. is an amazing game, but I don't Zelda's think an interesting that. one because I think the mechanics are phenomenal, mm. but they are so good that you need to be like the best player to get the most out of them. Mm. It's quite easy to progress in Zelda without like really engaging with the crazy stuff it allows you to do. Sure, it's like they made a system where metal items are lit- conduct electricity and are magnetic, and yes. that interacts with physics in Everything, interesting ways. Which and it, and yeah, and if a puzzle requires you to roll a big metal ball somewhere, mm. uh, then the, the it allows the 
the galaxy brain version of that where you take all the metal items out of your inventory and lay them in a line to circumvent the puzzle and that works mm. that's incredible like that's you know game of the decade stuff but it's like i'm a, i'm an i'm an idiot and i'm just playing the ball puzzle with the motion <laughs> sensitives like like most motion sensitive controllers like a mm. a big dickhead and it's circling around things just hitting them over yeah the so. it's a game where like watching someone else use those mechanics doing crazy things makes you feel like a, a huge Doof. idiot <laughs> <Doof>. that's, <laughs> that's played it completely wrong yeah. rather than like excited to go and learn mm. that stuff um i think yeah there's like that's definitely part of it i think plot is another big part of it like mm. Dragon Age Inquisition is a good example of an open world game that is not like incredible mechanically, but it, you want to find out what happens to everybody. And more to the point, you want to just go places and do stuff with people yeah. because you walk past a funny statue, the character you like is going to say something funny <laughs> and that will make it worth it. Like that's a very different proposition. I think that's actually one of the reasons I'm gravitating towards. If I had to pick one of the three, it's like of the three big open world games of this year which feel like now now that they've all turned out to apparently be good mm. uh, it's spider-man odyssey and red dead right i think i'm leaning towards odyssey partly because of the promise of like everyone seems to like the characters and mm. and the plot yeah. and stuff because like that is ultimately the thing i'll probably get the most out of mm. like dialogue options and having a boat full of mates <laughs> rather than like maybe because that you know like because i'm so out of out of uh faith with rocks uh, rocks star storytelling and because i know kind of what's going to happen in the spider-man game i'm excited by it but like that feels like i will enjoy being spider-man yeah but i know the parameters of that experience sure, yeah. yeah and it's not going to do anything too risky with it um spider-man is awesome because um don't go into it too much because it's not a pc game but it's very very good at putting you in spider-man's jumpsuit and the thing is it's not an origin story of spider-man again spider-man has mm. been being Spider-Man for, you know, years. Like, he's encountered most of his biggest enemies. And that is, like, the most refreshing thing you can fucking do with Spider-Man at the moment. Mm. Because, oh God, we've seen that origin story over and over again. Do we, do we want to see Uncle Ben again? I don't think so. It's one of the good things that was good about uh, the most recent, like, the Tom Holland Spider-Man, like, Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah. And onwards, is like, they don't bother with that Absolutely. at all. They barely mention Uncle Ben. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's good. Anyway, yeah. that's a <laughs> It is good. Yeah, um, you've played a bit of Odyssey, have you not? I have. I've played. Um, I played eight hours of it in preview, hmm. which I would say is like a very, very big preview event. Like <laughs> yeah. you never get eight hours of the game normally, and so they were they were very very pleased with it and mm. sort of willing to put it in front of the press for such a long time. And um, I had a fantastic time with it. I think it's very very good indeed. Awesome. The um, the open world is absolutely beautiful. I think the idea of kind of archipelagos where you're kind of sailing between bits is a great fit for Assassin's Creed, which can kind of become a bit samey, even the new Assassin's Creed. Uh, there's stuff I really dislike about it, uh, that is, uh, and it's the same stuff that I really disliked about Origins as well. And that is down to level gating systems, uh. where each zone, uh, you're told to, you know, you need to be a certain level to be in that zone. And if you're like one or two levels below the enemies, it's so punishing. Hmm. It's really punishing. It's, you, you know, seem to do like half as much damage, maybe less and take twice as much damage. Like it's, right. it's, it's really severe. And, uh, in order to actually kind of progress to the level point that you want to be, uh, to keep on doing the main quest, the main quest is really good. Loads of you know, big decisions to be made. The characters, as you know, Chris alluded to, are brilliant, really fun. Uh, you have to do a lot of kind of side missions all the time. The side missions are probably about 50% good. Some of them are really important. You'll meet new characters that are like romance options or people that you can hire to be on your boat and stuff like that, which feels really worthwhile. And there's some really good kind of interactions. But another one will be like, go fetch some wood. 
And there's no way on the outset, you know, when you're going into a side quest to know whether it's going to be an important one that you should do because it's fun or it is going to be a fetch quest you need to do to rank up your XP bar. So what I ended up doing uh, last night, actually, uh, was uh, I'm not really a, like a big micro microtransactions guy, but they there is a microtransaction for Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which permanently boosts the XP you gain by 50%. <laughs> oh, my God. For the entire game. Jesus. And this is kind of the thing I'm grappling with the most with this game because that fixes the game for me. <laughs> that fixes it. Like it, all the irritation I feel with the side quest, the kind of grinding to get through stuff. Bam. And it costs $10. Oof. Cost ten dollars, <laughs> and that's all you get with that. It's not like a special edition thing. It's not like no, it's just a thing you, everyone could go into the shop and buy, and um, and that so that is a sl- fucking slider for the developers, right? That is just a slider for the yeah. amount of shit you receive. Not expensive to make that deal, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and and the, the fact that you've you've paid like fifty quid for a game, and uh, a lot of people are like, I, I want to stress that people are loving it without this booster. People are really enjoying it, and uh, they like doing all the side quests and stuff. But for me, that's the, that is the sticking point. Yeah, especially when we're talking about having limited time to play these games and want yeah. to pursue most of it. That's Absolutely. actually very tempting. Because like I right. went through a little rollercoaster thing. Because when you told me that existed, I was like, I want that exactly. Because like, like <laughs> exactly. Right? Oh, good. And, like my first thought was literally like, oh, good. <laughs> and then I then I thought, oh no, both <laughs> in reaction to myself and the thing. Exactly and it was like, right. Exactly right. And uh, I think the the difference for me is that I, I'm happy to pay for stuff, the assets things that people have made mm. i i i resent paying for mm. a number moving a balance tweak, a balance tweak that is so trivial that feels that so trivial brazen mm. like that, and imagine if this had like five years ago this would have been all over the headlines like um yeah. the, the 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 media's perception of this the press is, as, as is taking a softer softer stance on this stuff and i, I don't want to like go after it because i think it's a really cool game i think there's loads of stuff that's great about it but this is an interesting thing to examine yeah it's a real concern because it takes it takes one thing it does is take an element of game balance essentially not balance in terms of competitiveness because it's a single player game but just the balance of the game as an experience and takes it out of the realm of patch notes because people currently have now have a financial they have skin in the game when it comes <laughs> to the the xp being not good and then being good mm. you know what i mean mm. it's like you can't sell a patch that fixes something right right like that that feels like a rubicon that no one's gone over it's like oh you want us to fix this bug hmm. like not that it's a bug necessarily but like it creates all this it creates really dodgy incentivization mm. just simply in the making of the game yeah it's interesting because i don't like that at all i wonder what would happen if it was just a toggle in the options menu exactly because i think there would be downsides to doing it that way i think there would be people who are like oh i'm actually pretty sure i want that and then click it and then you know, the people who want the game to be 300 hours long then blow through it in, I don't know, a mere 40 hours. <laughs> and like, what the hell? This is, you yeah. know, I was, um, oh, you know, it will be like, if you don't want to do, sorry, if you do want to do all the side content, leveling that fast is probably a bad thing because you get over leveled and then the side content is no longer like you can still do it, but it's it kind of feels like a waste of time because you're not really making any progress when you do it. I think the game might actually level up side content in oh, really? other areas with uh-huh. you, but I need to test that before that's confirmed. Why are the levels in there then? <laughs> <laughs> well, to stop you from going too far ahead. And this is the other thing is like, they give you this enormous, beautiful world and all the leveling, the level gating does is stop you from exploring it until, you know, the game wants you to. The funny thing is I actually, in Assassin's Creed Origins, I did uh, intentionally go through like crazy high level areas, like level uh, areas where they don't even tell me what level the people are. They're just mm-hmm. question marks. Um, 
And it was a really cool experience, except that, like, it was a cool experience just to ride on my horse through these weird, um, uh, like, desolate hills being terrified of everything. Like, if I see a lion, I'm like, oh, shit, <laughs> ride as fast as you can in the other direction because I'm going to be completely destroyed by that lion. Um, and then coming across the settlement and seeing, like, all these all these guards, any one of them could just absolutely murder me. And sneaking around that was really cool. Mm. And then, like, trying to climb into a window and steal something from a chest, hoping it would be something really good, and it wasn't. Um, <laughs> uh, that was really cool. And then getting the jump on somebody in that situation was really cool except because the high level it just doesn't work yeah. so like you i was trying to pull him out of a window and you just kind of like bump him against the frame a little bit and he loses like 0.01 percent yeah. of his health and nothing happens hmm. and that's where it, it shatters for me like if that worked if i could just assassinate him that way i'd be on board with all of it and he'd be like fine uh, you know make them as good as you like in combat make them as um uh, give them as many hp as you like but like assassinations ought to kill them yeah I, th- I think they added um some options to origins which lets you actually toggle on that ability to actually make assassinations do you mean odyssey or? uh sorry i mean origins oh yeah so i think they, they've so they've added a bunch of stuff to origins re- like re- retroactively huh. well here's the thing right like so if they went to odyssey and said okay we actually do want to tune down how punishing it is to be a high level area mm. Would people who bought the XP boost to get on the <laughs> oh, yeah. have a case that like they had devalued the thing that you'd bought? Right. Like yes, this is what I mean good. when I say that you take something out of the realm of patch notes and you put it in commercial territory. Yeah. It just makes things really weird. It's like, can you make the case for like I paid for this specific thing? Hmm. I, I paid for the inconvenience I experienced to be taken from this level to this level. <laughs> and if you reduce that maximum it like inconvenience level, then you have devalued You've, you've shortened the distance that my $10 has taken me and therefore I want it back or mm. it will take you to court, Eve. <laughs> like, yeah. So this thing of min- minimizing inconvenience has been part of leveling systems forever. So, if, uh, for example, in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, the, the, in all Assassin's Creed games, there tends to be like a scan button that you can tap and you, it highlights stuff in the area. Uh, that's like a, an ability you need to unlock with one skill point rather than just being an innate thing that your character mm-hmm. can do. And uh, so this stuff, like kind of redundancy stuff, has been built into progression systems forever. They decided that, okay, so you start like a, a blank slate and you have to, you know, pair back the inconvenience ability point at a time. But imagine that, but you pay money <laughs> to remove the inconvenience. And that's kind of what the XP booster does, is it says, you know, we've, we've created a deliberately irritating environment and now you need to pay to circumvent it. But I am speaking as someone who... Uh, if I was like 17 and this is one game I bought in for, for the Christmas period, I'd, I'd, I would explore everything and do everything in Assassin's Creed and that leveling curve would work for me. But the dilemma comes when, y- y- should I have to pay? Yeah. It's like paying for easy mode. Right. Should I have yeah. to pay for that? That doesn't seem cool. Like if they had charged for the story mode in Mass Effect 3. You know, when they introduced that, oh, yeah. it makes the combat trivial just mm. so you can see the cutscenes and make the decisions basically like, which was an acknowledgement that that's what some people want to do. If they charged for that, it would have felt like a tax on a certain type of player. Sure, mm. sure. I think this feels like a tax on a certain type of player yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And ironically, it's like, it's a tax on players with jobs. Exactly. Yeah. So those are the it, people right? who could afford it. Yeah. Like, you know, it tax the rich, but like there's, or tax the time poor, but that doesn't feel great when it's a, like, so for example, um, I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a bunch of free to play MMOs that do stuff like this. Like the Old Republic is one of them, hmm. uh, in its free to play existence, oh, gotcha, where yeah. it's like, if you're willing to pay the, so it's like, it's a bit of a grind, but if you're willing to pay the subscription fee, then the grind speeds up dramatically, particularly if you're just interested in seeing the storylines, some of which are very good. And so that, that for me, I kind of accept because A, it's a free to play game. Hmm. So it's like, if you're willing to pay, you get a slightly slicker experience. And that's, 
you know, I think I can make peace with that. But this is a expensive at the expensive end of of AAA, right? Mm. Like, there's a reason I'm trying to pick a pick a open world game to play this winter, and it's not just because they're all long; it's because they're all fifty quid games, mm. right? Like, that's not trivial and so you may pick one because you, you're investing in a bigger way than you would be normally yeah so to be like oh for just another seven quid i can also make it fit my life i can for, if, <laughs> right. for by paying more i can get less out of this <laughs> <laughs> like that oh god that's that's short-circuitingly kind of confounding as a thing mm. to hang over an otherwise yeah, apparently very good game. Isn't it? I'm sure there will be a backlash against it on Steam at least. Like there'll be a shitload of negative reviews. Um to be honest, I just assume there'll be a shitload of negative reviews on <laughs> any yeah. any main Assassin's Creed game, most Ubisoft games, and usually it's just like, what is it this time? <laughs> what are they, is it something somebody said on Twitter or is it uh a legit thing? And this time it might be the legit thing. <laughs> yeah. I want to be uh, positive for a minute. It, it is it is a cool game. Mm. I'm really enjoying it. It's fucking beautiful. Like it's so. I've loved everything I've seen of it. That's the thing. That's what yeah. makes it difficult because this would be an ignoring the game thing. But yeah, sorry, go on. Like I want to hear yeah, why it's good. Yeah, no, it's it's true. And um, I'll just talk about the uh, the characters as well. So Assassin's Creed has always kind of struggled a bit with tone and mm. its stance on being historically accurate versus versus its nonsense Templar versus Assassins mm. stuff. Uh, and I've always loved Assassin's Creed when it's been more fun and mm. more just kind of adventurous, which is why I love um, like Black Flag, for example, which is almost, con- you know, it-, it has contempt for its own fiction in a way, <laughs> because you play as a-, a rogue pirate who just thinks the Assassins versus Templars stuff is a load of fucking nonsense. <laughs> and he's going to rob everyone. <laughs> uh, uh, he can, he can rob along, you know, as he's trying to get along with them. Uh, this one it- with Origins and now Odyssey, they've, gone into a different space which i really like where it's outright kind of just fantasy like it's mm. just it's like a it's like a fantasy game with the dressed in greek clothes basically and there's some sort of semi-supernatural stuff or just nonsense stuff so you you'll be wandering through a countryside and suddenly you'll find a boss boar which is a, just incredibly hard boar boss fight that summons mini boars and you have to <laughs> it's a multi-stage fight with this boar that you found in this field and it's a legendary animal that's just in the place it's like one of the labors of hercules wrestle a big boar i might be misremembering that I think you spawns other boars yeah yeah the the, 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 the multi-boar <laughs> uh, and so your upgrade tree for example like lets you just set your your blade on fire by just like stroking it or something i don't know what happens uh it, it's it's outright rpg fantasy stuff mm. uh but through a historical lens that you know it, it, again like it's not interested in being historically accurate about the spartans the athenians and what they particularly wore but everyone wears the coolest shit that kind of <laughs> looks like people might have worn in the period. You know what I mean? It's, it's extrapolating to a kind of extreme, uh, a kind of, uh, you know, with a very vivid kind of fiction that I really enjoy and I really like exploring. And uh, combining that with the technology uh, that they've developed to create these, these open worlds, it's just an astonishing kind of audio-visual experience to go through it. And that, for me, is the reason to play it. Mm. I still don't fully love the combat i think it's better i think the more they go into fantasy territory and give you crazy abilities there's an incredible ability that uh, uh, you disarm someone of their shield and you grab it and then you whack them across the face with it <laughs> and as you do that you throw it and it's like a, a physics object that goes tumbling into the ocean like 20 feet behind them awesome hope and this it, wasn't your favorite shield <laughs> <laughs> dickhead and uh, 
uh, and that's fantastic because um, the character you play as is uh, this isn't a spoiler. This is real super early. Uh, it, it was um, born of a Spartan family, and so the idea is that you're aggressive all the time. You never use a shield. That's the difference between Origins <laughs> and Odyssey. Uh, is that you're always like jaw wielding. You've got a big weapon. It's about parrying rather than you know uh, totally like Dark Souls style behind a shield. Uh, so this particular move is just like fuck shields, <laughs> <laughs> and, and every time I do it, I love it. And and Odyssey, um, sorry, Origins. I wish they hadn't yeah. named them both so similarly. Uh, Origins didn't have that kind of sense of fun to me. Uh, no. Just the kind of slapstick move set that makes uh, combat, even though it's not like especially challenging or uh, and it's not a lot of fun a lot of the time. It's entertaining in its moments, moment animations. Is there a kick move? Death fucking is a kick <laughs> so good Alice. does that have any dark messiah of my magic thing where it kind of like magnetically draws people into spikes or it doesn't <laughs> do th- it doesn't do that but um i will say that uh the greek islands and greece itself you know there's a lot of there's a lot of verticality to it mm. lots of cliffs excellent and um one of my favorite gifts of uh, odyssey so far actually is just uh someone kicking a lion off a cliff <laughs> <laughs> into the ocean <laughs> Extremely effective. Um, Alice Bell <laughs> wrote a very good article for Rock Paper Shotgun mm. about the kicking. It's very good. And in that article, there's a great screenshot of the upgrade tree where you unlock the kicking. Mm. And my favorite bit of this, which wasn't commented on in the article, I don't think, is the description of the kick specifically. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically, it does like this amount of warrior damage <laughs> and doesn't prevent the opponent from being recruited later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with this. <laughs> and I think the, the that, what that means is like it's a non-lethal. Yes, like. that's right. That's right. The, but it's just like <laughs> everyone loves the kick. The kick giveth, the kick taketh away. Like. The recruitment stuff is hilarious. <laughs> so you, you have to non-lethally disable someone before they'll work for you in this world. Right. <laughs> Interesting employment law there. But uh, you can stealth non-lethally recruit someone. <laughs> what? <laughs> So, uh, you can. I mean, I love it, but what? <laughs> uh, so you can sneak up behind someone and do like a non-lethal takedown. And then while they're down, you can recruit them. Just like whisper in their ear, hey, have you thought about joining? Yeah, that's literally what happens. <laughs> it's not a joke. That's what happens. So, hey, want to be my best friend? Hey, this is, so this is, um, uh, learning from Horizon because this is a thing mm. that makes perfect sense in Horizon because the right, way yeah, you convert yeah. things to your side in Horizon is you hack them because they're robots sure. and sure, you know, yeah. naturally they don't want you to get close and it's or, hard to do it when they're fighting you so naturally stealth is the way that you have to hack them and yeah. it works perfectly because it's my two favourite things stealth and turning people to my side mm. <laughs> or Shadow of Mordor where mm. you touch the orc and the ghost in your in your body <laughs> also makes very logical. your friend <laughs> makes complete sense like I like that maybe this recontextualizes uh, 300 a little bit so mm. that like there's one well for people you don't like and one big well for people you do like <laughs> <laughs> and it's you whichever well you kick, kick left them into. or kick right <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, like yeah. kick left like but uh, <laughs> uh, the, um, Odyssey has has borrowed a lot from a lot of other open world games uh, the uh, Shadow of Mordor comparison is, is legit actually because there's a whole mercenary system where um, you do crimes uh, <laughs> Just do, good. just do those crimes and uh mercenaries come after you and they hunt you across the world and uh but there's a kind of like a whole hierarchy of them and it's like a, you level up as you defeat them and you can uh, the idea is that you level up and then the hunter becomes the hunted and you start hunting mm. them down and you can find them on the map and, and, and kill them but uh and they have 
Shadow of Mordor style orc weaknesses <laughs> uh, in exactly the same way. It's like this person is weak to being cudgeled or whatever. <laughs> this Me person too, actually. is quite weak to being kicked off a cliff like a lion <laughs> uh, or set on fire or whatever or poisoned or whatever. It's, it's very similar. And also um, the more the kind of wanted level you build, uh, you can pay people off to kind of decrease the GTA style. Uh, but if you don't, uh, other mercenaries start chasing you at the same time so you could be in a fight with a mercenary who's chasing you and like two others will show up and it's exactly like orcs in shadow mm. more it's exactly the same they've just seen that system and gone yep we'll have that and that is great like people can you steal each other's systems if you cut their head off can they come back with a bag over it <laughs> <laughs> i don't think they can but i've not tested the system enough i think once you've defeated them uh, they're gone because there's a, a screen in the menu system where you see them kind of lined up once you've discovered them. And once you've defeated them, they turn away and look ashamed <laughs> on that screen. So they just look really glum. <laughs> uh, they are dead at that point. They're sad because they're dead. Yeah. Uh, they've gone to Hades <laughs> to be ashamed. <laughs> it's, it's a good game. It's a good game. I don't want to stress that it is good. Yeah. I'm sorry you want to play it, but thing. oh boy, that seven quid to make it easier on your time is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does it have an eagle? Fucking does have an eagle. Excellent. Again, the eagle is again amazing. It, it works. It behaves exactly the same way as Origins. Awesome. And um, the funny thing about um, Odyssey is that people comment on it in the world. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the first island you start on, there's like a little girl who you help out and kind of looked after. And she thinks you're kind of uh, close to the gods because you've got this eagle that follows you around and does magic <laughs> shit like, yeah she's correct be, that is to be fair in ancient greece that would be legit as a yeah, you know like yeah, holy shit like, to, i think, I think well, definitely true for the romans but like you know bird omens and things like that yeah right? like absolutely i think eagles are zeus's bird like uh, so yeah they, they make a thing of that and uh she's like oh well, you must be magic you must be like one with the gods because you've got that eagle and then i i play cassandra that both the characters are brilliant but cassandra is especially good uh she's like oh it's just a bird <laughs> end of conversation <laughs> meanwhile i'm just gonna walk into my eagle yeah. and use it to mark people like a drone <laughs> uh superb it, it, it's a very good game it's just uh it's interesting to examine that uh microtransaction is a mm. particular intersection between you know people who want uh it, cause it's so subjective right because it depends on what you want from the game do you want it to be a time sink where you just exist in this world or like us kind of hurried you know, yeah. people, uh, we want something a bit faster. Right? It's weird, like, because I think I want to be able to just not treat it as just it exists in the world. Mm. But I also know that I bounce off things when you get the big town problem, right? It's not yeah, just open sure. world games that suffer from this. It's just big games that suffer from mm. this. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, basically. There are probably big decisions in the story as well. The Mass Effect kind of um, choice stuff they've added is worthwhile and legit as well. That's good. What that, that's, what, first, that's what's got me. From what I've played in the first mm. eight hours, definitely. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Awesome. What have you been playing, Tom? We'll go around the circle. I've been playing Race for the Galaxy, mm. uh, which what is, is originally a board game. Either of you know it? No. No. Huh. Um, yeah, it's a board game I actually played a few years back, uh, but now it's on PC and also iOS. I'm actually playing on iPad. Um, but it's, uh, I think there's a whole class of board games like this, but it was the first I played where I, I believe they're called sort of engine building, uh, card games. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you're sort of, um, uh, the cards you get are things like planets and space stations and, uh, it's kind of it actually. There's just very, uh, a lot of different variations on that. And you can build them or not. And each one you build costs a certain amount of other cards. So if it like has a four on it, then when you play it, you're going to have to discard four other cards to build it. Um, 
but the sort of central mechanic is a very strange one, which is there are like five or six phases to the game um, that correspond to the different actions you can do. So one of them is called explore, and that's where you draw cards and you keep some of them and discard others. And um, construct is where you build things like space stations. Settle is where you land on planets and you know basically place a planet on the board and then keep it. Um, and then there's produce, uh, where all your planets produce stuff if they have that ability and then consume where you can take the things you did produce and turn them into something else like points um and the strange thing about it is that you don't do all those in a given turn you have to all the players before the turn starts uh secretly decide which they want to happen and then um you all kind of reveal and you're going to do all of those things but it, like if you wanted the construct phase to happen because you wanted to construct a space station and your opponent play construct as well. It was kind of a waste for you to play construct. It would have been better if you'd played something else because you right. also want to get like settle or something. Um, so you're sort of trying to guess what your opponent's going to do. And if they're going to, if you think they're going to do what you want to happen, you could do something else as well. And that, but then if you get it wrong, they don't do the thing and then you just don't get to build your thing that turn. So it's got a strange sort of like gambling thing like that. Um, and the other weird thing about it is that, that that's almost the only interaction you have with other players. <laughs> There's, uh, I haven't ever encountered any abilities that, um, depend on what your opponent has or wreck what your opponent is up to um, or in any way interfere with anything they're doing. So um, you're just basically... Like when I played in real life, I just looked at my cards the entire time and didn't pay attention to any other players, <laughs> uh, except occasionally... I don't think I even really did any predicting of like, oh, I think someone else is probably going to... Uh, and sometimes like in the early game, it's very common for people to do explore because you don't have very many cards, so you want to get more. Um, and in the later game, it's more common for people to do produce because they have a lot of stuff set up and they want to get that producing stuff. Um, but beyond that, I didn't really think about, like, I would have to know so much about what your shit is for me to predict what you're going to choose this turn in particular. Like, I have to know not only what cards you have, um, and what stuff you understand, all the things, stuff you've already got on the table, but also, like, which of those things you're thinking about doing this turn. And my chances of getting that right are so low that I pretty much just ignore it and, um, if I want to construct something, I'll choose construct. <laughs> and if you chose right. construct too, I'm like, that's fine. I still get to construct my thing. You even get a bonus for it for choosing it. So, um, like it's one cheaper if you chose construct. Um, and so it's, you can really just keep yourself to yourself, but it's complex enough that that is, uh, easily enough to be thinking about. And it's really fun just to figure out, like, how do I take these cards I've been given and make a really cool setup that's going to generate points and, um, create goods. Um, the four kinds of goods in this world are rare minerals, um, novelties, uh, genes, and alien. <laughs> genes is in genetic, not uh, uh, yeah, genetics. <laughs> Just good well, denim, blue jeans lovely cool. denim, <laughs> prime denim. Um, and it's so it's actually like perfect for a computerization because. A, it doesn't really matter what the opponent's doing. So like they're sort of playing against other people. It does have multiplayer and you can, you can play against other people, but, uh, you just kind of don't need to. So it's just, it's quite a good fit for just playing against the AI. Um, and I want to talk about the AI later because I saw a talk about it. Um, and B, it's full of it's just shitloads of rules. <laughs> like the, it's got this really efficient visual language where, um, every card, because every card can kind of potentially do things in different phases. Like if you have a planet, it might both produce something in the produce phase and also consume in the consume phase. That mm. give you a way of consuming something and getting two points out of it or getting a free card out of it. Um, 
or and it might also just as a um unrelated thing in the explore phase you get to look at more cards before you choose which ones you're going to keep um and so that is just down the left hand side of all the cards but what they do is both described in text but also shown with a a complex system of of icons that there is a logical consistency to it like it does make sense theoretically you could learn that language and just know exactly what the card did without having to read the description um which is pretty impressive because there's so much going on like you know for each thing it can be a world or it can be a construct or you know building or whatever um and if it's a world it can be military or not military uh if it's military it could be rebel or non-rebel if it's in either any of those three cases, it could produce a good of any of four different kinds, or it could be a windfall world for that good, which means it doesn't produce it, but under circumstances, certain circumstances, it'll get one for free. Um, or it could do n- neither of those things. Um, and uh, then that's like all of that is on top of all of its abilities. So all of that just has to be in one icon. Oh, and also it has a amount of cards it costs to build and amount of victory points it gets you for building it. Um, and all of that is somehow communicating just a few icons, but there's just shitloads going on. And so it's really nice playing it on a computer where it just tells me <laughs> in this situation, you can play these three cards. You can't play anything else. And, um, when you, once you get like a good setup of all these buildings, all these planets and, and constructions producing things, um, and you get to the consume phase, the way that works is like, if you have like five consumabilities and you only got three, um, uh, goods to actually consume, you pick which consume ability you want to trigger and then you pick which good you want to consume with it. And there are reasons you might want to particularly use that one on that kind of good and to save this other one for later because that one can only use blue goods. Um, and it's one thing I, I'm pretty sure I must have got wrong when I was playing it in real life is you have to consume if you can. And so I had a setup where like I had two consume abilities, uh, sorry, I had three planets that could consume things and I produced three goods each turn. But my three consumabilities was one, it turns the good into a card. Another, it turns the card into a victory. Sorry, another one, it turns the good into a victory point. And the third one was you can feed it any number of goods and it gives you, however many you gave it, it gives you one less than that victory points. Hmm. And so I couldn't use all three of those in a given turn productively because two of them require a good each. I only have one good left after that. And this one gives me one less than that. So zero. Hmm. And so I'm like in real life, I just be like, okay, so I don't do that because I can't like, get anything out of it. But you have to do it. If you can consume, you must consume. And so you have to pointlessly just throw your good away <laughs> each turn. And because I'm playing on a computer version, it just tell, it just won't let me progress until I do that. Like it, it enforces the rules. Um, and also, yeah, it's just really good for like, this card gives you two victory points for every brown world you have that's producing, but not windfall worlds and not military worlds. And this card gives you, uh, one victory point for every station you have that does something on the consume phase. And instead of having to add all that up, it just tells you it's seven. <laughs> that comes to seven. It's interesting card space where card games or board games become slightly too complicated and end up becoming sort of better video games. Yeah. Another think about um, Solium Infernum, for example, which mm. is a game that I think would uh, benefit immensely from people being face-to-face while playing it, given that <laughs> a lot of the mechanics are about betrayal and, you know, undermining each other. But the mechanics themselves are absolutely too complicated to do it with real tokens. But it's weird that the game also just gives you those little virtual tokens that are scattered across a f- fake desktop that you kind of move mm. around and spend. Uh, and th- th- there's an interesting point where, you know, uh, a, bo- a physical system becomes slightly better with the computer yeah, yeah. do you think control? you would play this 
are you more interested in playing Race the Galaxy in real life, having now kind of... No, less interested, actually, because now I'm like, mm. now all that bookkeeping is taken care of for me, yeah. I couldn't go back to having to do it all myself. Like, it's so nice just to have it all added up and summed mm. up. Is this a, yeah. um, Asmodee digital thing? Is I don't it know. Asmodee thing? It's just because the, the board game publisher Asmodee has done a bunch of, or it has done slash is doing a bunch of conversions of quite big board games to, right. to games like Risk Legacy and, and Pandemic. This one, and, hmm. I, I know the name of the people digitizing it well enough that if you said it, I would know if you said it or not. <laughs> okay. Um, but I don't know the name of the, so I'd say every name of the every board game. game. <laughs> Until someone gets uh, what I'm saying, my mouth and emit the name of the company who digitized it is not Asmodee, right. uh, cause right. I would know. Um, but I know that this, this adaptation came about because, um, so I saw GDC talk about it and I forget the speaker's name, but she, uh, wanted to see if there was an AI, uh, that could play, um, Race to the Galaxy when it was just a board game and found this, um, open source AI, a neural net this guy had made. Um, and, uh, she really liked it and she want, actually just wanted to like add a feature to it, uh, where it would like, ping you when the AI was ready to take a turn or whatever. Um, and she ended up contacting like the creators of the board game to say, Hey, has anyone ever talked to you about making the digital version? And then they came back and said, uh, no, but if you're going to do it, you should look at this, uh, this neural net thing that this guy made. And so that is the AI they've based their, their thing mm. on. And there's a talk about how, uh, I don't know if it's public yet. It's on the, the GDC vault. Um, about how that neural net works and basically like on a very basic level it, it's um uh it is able to through endless experience through loads loads of test games um know for a given move what is the percentage probability that this leads to a win like how right. how often in this kind of situation does playing that card ultimately lead to me winning and it can weight that by like how much did i win that time that i played that card and won and um how does that weigh off versus like the 90 eight percent of the time i didn't win after playing that card and because it knows that uh, it, it can be trained to um have a very good base of knowledge for that and because it's a complicated game it's better at learning that than most humans are um and because it can also uh, because it can know what the best move in a situation is when it's playing against it's a good human it can guess what the human will do because it knows what the best thing for the human to do is um and therefore predict what they're going to do so it does weird counterintuitive things like um it would, it has a bunch of stuff to construct and it doesn't vote for the construct phase. It votes for the explore phase, uh, even though, um, or the settle phase or something, um, even though it doesn't have anything that it could settle yet because it's so sure that the human player is going to do the construct deny thing, them because huh. it's the best thing for the, the yeah. human player to do. Fuck. And so it doesn't need to vote for the construct. We're doomed. <laughs> We're all doomed. But That's then fun. one of the most interesting things was, um, uh, and they've got that to, um, apparently it's in the 99th percentile of players, you know, the AI, it's, it's better than 99% of humans. Um, so it's like, it's good enough. That they don't need to make it any better. Um, and then for the easier AIs, like they don't want every AI opponent to be that good. Um, the way they do that is for all its moves, it has that score of like, what percentage is this to win the game? And, you know, if it's the final card you play and it will win you the game, that's a hundred and you know, everything else is lower. Um, and, uh, rather than have it like sort of always do the second best option or always do the third best option or anything like that, uh, all those scores just add a bit of noise. So it right. just adds like a little random value to all of those. So it like, it has the true data and then it corrupts it slightly. So it's like, it's kind of seeing through a fog or something like, I think I seem to remember that maybe this card is the best one, but I'm not totally sure. And, uh, that just like corrupts its decision making like very, very slightly. 
and then they can just tune that amount of noise you know um they the way they judge its difficulty is they test it against itself so the hard one which is the best one they can do um they balance the medium one so that it loses to the hard one 75 percent of the time and then if they want it to win or lose more they can just change the amount of noise that's added to its decision making process which is really interesting i want to say that sometimes occasionally 2018 is amazing yeah <laughs> like someone's like oh i've got a really interesting idea i found a bloke who's made a neural net and now i'll turn this into this incredible system that can adapt to human behavior and make mm. entertainment for them that's exceptional yeah. that's, that's really good, good. Hmm. I was, uh, that, sorry, yeah, that reminded me of, um, the, the idea that the AI kind of knows the truth and it knows the optimal path is like the core of lots of difficulty in AI design in mm. RTS stuff as well. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I, it made me laugh because recently I was watching videos of football manager 20, 2019 and they've added v, VAR, which is video assisted refereeing, uh, in the real sport where, you know, if people aren't sure what's happened on the pitch, the referee can go to, uh, watch some replays on a, a screen and they've added this to to this game and uh, there's a whole like animation in the match engine which shows the little referee tiny little referee very slowly like running to the middle of the center and running off the pitch to look at a fake television screen <laughs> to discover what the entire game already knows definitely happened <laughs> because it was fucking programmed to happen in a certain way and the ball was mapped and everything was correct yeah. and then it generates fake drama on the basis of that by making a little man love, around why don't they have the why don't they have the we're all living in a simulation assisted refereeing system <laughs> why don't they where? have the, the, uh, the matrix moment you know? <laughs> exactly what? it went in says god the architect <laughs> I, I see. I, I love the kind of puppetry of that and the absurd yeah. kind of farce of it. Really, <laughs> I really like. So, uh, man, this is this is extremely relevant to Hackmud law. Um, <laughs> weirdly, so I don't want to go too deep into it. But like, uh, I love the idea that in order to make AI believable and uh, comfortable to use, there's a degree of fuzziness they require. Like that, you you know, too specific exposes both extreme capability but also extreme incapability like when the ai is dead set determined that it knows what the answer is and it's completely wrong which is like the siri kind of <laughs> issue yeah. um or more broadly like the google issue like there's a really good um tweet recently which was like uh, someone googling plot of 1984 as in the book and Google just generated a graph that plotted the number 1984. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's completely 100% correct. But like, uh, like, you know, what you need in that scenario is, is, is sort of, uh, I guess sort of like semantic ambiguity, which could also just be fuzziness, right? It can just be like, I've made a slightly different call or I've kind of accepted that this thing you've said has lots of different interpretations and maybe I can make a mistake. That is like a fuzziness that AI requires in order to pass into a different kind of band of interpretability, which is interesting because it means that, like means that pure kind of capability is not the key to making something believable, which I find kind of endlessly fascinating. It's like mm. you've got to generate a cast of complete fuck ups <laughs> in order for people to kind of buy it. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, no, that's rad. And I think um, like it's really cool to have that sort of AI applied to a fun fundamentally a social mechanic as well. Like, has anyone ever made an AI for like werewolf or mafia? Um, that'd be really fascinating because that seems like something that's probably possible yeah. in a machine learning -y kind of way in the same way there's a lot of i guess like the conversation side of it we just it can keep up with that but um 
Uh, she actually gave One Night Ultimate Werewolf as an example of a thing you couldn't make a neural network for in this way, mm. because um, not because of the social side of it, because it's only one turn. Like this neural network needs lots of turns to kind of accumulate right. knowledge and measure its its performance against previous turns and things like that. I love. Um, I, I, I've played a lot of Werewolf in my life, and I love Werewolf as a sort of demonstration of how like real life neural like information networks form between people it's really fascinating like once a year i go to cold war with a bunch of friends and basically there's like one sunday is given over just playing back-to-back games of werewolf with the same group of people and i run all of them and you notice the most amazing things about how information passes between people in a group like there's one friend that i've known for 20 years who is doomed to never play past the first turn of werewolf because it started as like the first game we played years ago he was a werewolf. And then that leads to completely, and this is partly that wisdom of crowd stuff, the weakness of wisdom of crowd stuff, there's other things related to this, like, well, this person's been a werewolf what feels like a statistically unlikely number of times, therefore they're probably a werewolf now. Mm. And the way the game werewolf works is you need, like, a kind of safe victim on the first turn. Like, you need to pick somebody. So who do you pick? Oh, it might as well be our friend Robin. And, like, it's genuinely become, like, we almost have to step in. And, like, it becomes a really interesting question for, like, as a sort of a game master, I guess. Because you say, do you say, like, hey, guys, it sucks that it's been five years and Robin has never played a full game of werewolf. (laughs) Let's give him a break. Because if in that time he happens to be a werewolf, you've just completely broken the game. So maybe the best thing to do as a game designer is just to not touch it and just be like, well, I'm sorry, humans. This And it's like you can blame AI for being weird all the time, but that is a totally human-generated neural net problem where it's Mm. kind of learned that, like, it thinks that 80% of the time Robin is a werewolf, therefore always kill Robin. <laughs> it's like a kind of rule it's generated. Mm. And you need fuzziness in that system to make this group of humans less, like, persecutorial to, to Robin, <laughs> specifically. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was playing one of those games. Um, uh, what's the, uh, like, King Arthur type one? Uh, not Coup. Is it Coup? No. I do um, know Coup as well. But um, there's Oh, it's a variant of... Is there's one a, called something like insurgency. Or? Yeah, it's it. Yeah, there is a Avalon? King Arthur. There's a King Arthur version of a it's game that's really sort of, frustrating for anyone who does know this. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. Anyway, you're camping that game. A bit, yes. That game. No, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> It'll come to me, but um, it's not coming to me now. Uh, Resistance Avalon, isn't that it? Yes, it's definitely the version. It's it's a King Arthur version of a game that has a different identity. Mm. Anyway, I was playing that, and uh, it was just Resistance. like I was one of the good guys, and I was trying to figure out who the bad guy who the bad guys were and it just kind of led to a sort of logic like it just couldn't figure it out there's just no good answer to the evidence they had and then it turned out at the end that just one of the good players had one time voted for the thing to go bad and for no reason they just hadn't really understood the rules <laughs> and it's just yeah. like if you have one piece of information that isn't that like just fundamentally doesn't make sense all of the deduction that comes from it is just nonsense right <laughs> at that point that's why this games are so good <laughs> honestly some of my favorite bits of game design because they're so simple but they mm. just create like endlessly memorable situations basically thanks to the weaknesses in human programming <laughs> Um, yeah. makes me realize I wouldn't want to be a detective because <laughs> if one fucking person is like completely innocent that's just told you something utterly wrong it just becomes unsolvable they've forgotten something stupid right yeah <laughs> man <laughs> what have you been playing Chris um, so I've been playing uh, Distance um, which mm. so I have, a, I have a funny history with this game because I uh, I started my career at PC Gamer back in 2011 uh, brought in to help out sort of over Christmas and then never left basically uh, and you remember, Tom, because I was living on your couch at the time. Indeed. Um, and I remember I did this free games roundup for Christmas. This was Christmas 2011. 
Um, and I picked this, uh, free kind of, uh, sort of ne- like neon tronish racing game, time trial game called Nitronic Rush. Mm. Really liked it. I that. Um, and right afterwards, uh, the developers got in touch because they hadn't really gotten any coverage. So it turned into like one of the first interviews I ever did with the guys who were just leaving Digipen, I think, mm. and going to make their own studio, which is called Refract. And then they launched a Kickstarter for what would basically be the professional version of, of Metronic Rush. And, uh, I backed that Kickstarter, um, because I liked them and I liked the game. Uh, anyway, six and a half years later, my entire <laughs> career happens and their game comes out. And it's been in early access for a while. Like it's had, it's like, right. it had a pre-testing time, but like, I think weirdly because I had paid for it already, like, you know, I, I backed the Kickstarter. I just sort of waited for my final version 1.0 key to show up. Um, and it was really weird to, uh, I'll, I'll talk about what it is in a sec, but like, it was really weird to finish the, uh, uh, you know, the sort of single player portion of the game and it ends. So you, you drive through the credits. It's a, it's a driving game and you drive through like, you know, stylish tracks, the, the main credits flash by, and then you get sort of deposited in this world where you can drive around these spheres with these little sort of like lights on them. And as you drive through a light, a name comes up and it's where all of the Kickstarter backers are. And different colored lights have different names beginning with different colors. So I think if you drive into the orange section, I'm in there somewhere. <laughs> and I've got a screenshot. It was really weird to like, after all these years, to like kind of just drive around and be, to have my own name pop up in the credits, um, in its own way. Anyway, so what it is, um, is a, a sort of tight, like a, a sort of, um, time trial kind of challenge track racing game. Um, sort of in the track mania vein. Track mania is probably the most ready comparison. Um, but it's pretty much its own thing. So you, you're a kind of cyber car on traveling across a kind of cyber landscape most of the time. And, uh, you have, it, it doesn't, you, you don't control like a car. You're very like, you're very precise control. Um, it feels like the car is more like an analogy for the thing you are. Um, and for example, you kind of go at a set speed. Uh, until you choose to boost and you should probably be boosting all of the time, but boosting feats fills up a heat gauge <coughs> and you explode. Um, I get reset back to a checkpoint. If you let it fill it, that's cars for you. That's cars for you. Um, but there are periodic, um, checkpoints that, uh, cool the car back down, even if you're going full blast. Mm, and those are often tailored to mean that if you're driving well, you never have to let go of the button. Like <laughs> it's only if you screw up that you have to then slow down. So you don't overheat. If that makes sense. That's an interesting way of kind of dictating a racing line, uh, beyond. Yeah. It's almost like reverse cow- cars. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. it's like if you go, if you're going too slowly, you need to slow down so that you can speed up. Right. But when you're going well, it feels great because you get this thing where you're like, I trust I'm going as fast as I possibly can. Therefore that checkpoint looks too far away, but I suspect it's been placed precisely. You know, there's no, there are no varying chassis or anything like that. Mm. You're in a standard vehicle that always, you know, has the same maximum speed as everybody else. So. You know, the level design can be very, very precise. Uh, you can also, sorry, go on. Sorry, th- this feels a lot like wipeout. Like, if you, mm. when you start to get really good at wipeout, it's about chaining the boosts that you, and you can see on the track. And if you hit the boost in the right angle, you're going to corner fine with a little bit. You don't have to necessarily break too much. Yeah. Uh, so it's a kind of interesting. Like trust in the level designer. Right. Yeah. And you, but it's also, it's got that racing element of learning the tracks as well. Yeah. Just kind of knowing where that stuff's going to be. And so, and to be clear, these aren't tracks. They don't loop. They right, are so one, they're one way runs to the end. Okay. Basically like track, track mania. Mm. Um, and, uh, but wipeout's a good comparison. Like I love wipeout and I think it's, it's certainly aesthetically as well. Mm. Uh, it has a lot of that feel. You can also jump. Um, you have jets on the bottom. Uh, while you're in the air, 
you have the ability to open the doors at which point you become a plane. <laughs> um, but that has its own, that consumes, that generates heat constantly and actually slows you down. It's kind of better to be on the ground if you can be. Um, and also different tracks might switch off your ability to do that at different points. So you might force you into the ground. Mm. You can also do things like fire your thrusters upwards to push, to create downforce, to push yourself onto the track. Okay. Because you can also, uh, and this is where the game really opens up. So like, it's fundamental vocabulary. Like, I love movement mechanics. That's kind of like a, a big reliable thing for me. Like, if your game has interesting movement mechanics, uh, whether it's a racing game or a shooter, I will probably like it. Um, and so uh, a big part of this is your ability to, like, drive up walls. While, while your car is in the air, you rotate it in, in full 3D, like, as, as, a, as a kind of fully rotatable object. Mm. Basically, you don't have air control in the way that you might think of it in a platformer. So in a, in a traditional platformer, when when you jump, because platformers are an important touchstone for what kind of game this is, in a, in a platform, when you jump, you're used to being able to kind of like move about in the air a bit to land on the next platform. That's not how distance works. When you jump, you are going in the direction you are going when you move, if that makes sense. Like, like, like real jumping. As soon as you leave the ground, you lose your ability to really control your, you know, direction or speed. Mm. Uh, but what you can control is the rotation of the car. So like a trick it teaches you eventually um is you'll be shooting along super super fast and the the road you're on will end um like abruptly and there'll be another road sideways sort of 90 degrees perpendicular to it running alongside it and what you need to do is drive so you're kind of like pointing into the what what is basically a wall jump and then rotate the car 90 degrees and then the camera will rotate with you and now you're on the wall all right um, but obviously if you jump now, you're going to go to the right, for example, if the wall was on the left, mm. because gravity is in a particular direction, that doesn't change. Okay. And, and so the sounds kind of mind melting and it kind of is. And, uh, but it's rad basically. And it feels really, really good to pull it off. And I think six and a half years of development, this is benefited from mean that it sort of offers those different experiences at the same time. So like, uh, there is a single player campaign basically, uh, where you are basically, it, it's beautifully presented. There's, it has no UI, like also no kind of traditional UI. Um, everything is on the back windscreen of the car, <laughs> cool. which is super cool. Yeah. Uh, cool. Like, and the, the heat me- heat meter is basically around what would be your brake lights mm. as they light up. Um, music is great. And the single player campaign has you kind of drive a car that might be an AI that might be a robot through a space station that might be a teleporter that might just be the dream of a robot. It's in the genre of uh, indie game story mm. called, is this a robot? So something, something is, <laughs> something's in a coma. Something. Is it an AI? And I, <laughs> I, I say this that. with fondness because I'm, I'm writing one of those. So there's the, <laughs> like, is it a robot? Hmm. It's in that, but it's beautifully presented and like loads of great, like the, the story, like it's a story that's told wordlessly. So it is just a sort of inferred kind of an inferred robo tale in that genre, basically. Yeah. Um, but it's basically just stages teaches you the game as you race through these kind of like sci-fi environments. Um, mm. lots of cool kind of glitch effects and kind of, you know, just great music and like it's sort of in, in some ways, like I liked Thumper. But it's almost the game I wish Thumper was right. in some ways. Like Thumper's great and almost mad. Like, but it's this has got more like um, you feel like you got a little bit more control. It's not just sort of screaming towards this. Yeah, Thumper's very much like a rhythm action game. Yeah, like, more less than a kind of racing game. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a continuum uh, in in terms of games where you're racing forwards really quickly, mm. where you get rhythm action games on one 
side of the spectrum and you've got like just traditional platformers on the other and then racing games are in the middle and there's a weird span mm. to kind of but like this is in the middle of that and so like when you get really good at it it feels like you're playing with a sense of rhythm yeah and getting set back sucks um and so i played about half the campaign um which i like but it takes a little bit very silly a little bit i think and then i went and just played some multiplayer so multiplayer has uh, a form of multiplayer I really love, uh, which is the sort of like just hang out and try and beat the challenge multiplayer. And there are multiple different kinds, but it's like basically like you can't interact with other players. You can't bump them off the track or anything. It's time trial. Hmm. But like everyone just sort of hangs out on the server until everyone's finished the time trial. And there's full like custom map creation tools and things for players to use. So inevitably when you join a server, it pulls down whatever the players are playing. It's probably not something from, from the game proper. Mm. And therefore sort of my first experience of multiplayer was playing like the hardest imaginable tracks. <laughs> like the amount of, like there's a lot of stuff going on. It has portal style portals. It has well, gravity switches. It has well, a lot of gravity switches in that way, but like you can go through a portal and come out somewhere where the gravity is completely different. Mm. Um, it can require you to fly a bit and then drive up a wall sideways and flip onto something else. And that reminds me a lot of Trackmania. Yeah. But it also reminds me a lot of something that I'm very, very fond of. Uh, this is a deep cut, but, um, T, Team Fortress classic jump maps. Right. Which are a very specific feature of my adolescence. Uh, that I don't think has an equivalent nowadays, which is where you would load into a Team Fortress map and the goal was simply to get to the end of it. And you could only do this by being very, very good at conk jumping, <laughs> which is where you drop the medic's concussion grenade behind you in midair, mm. which is just sort of trick jumping. It's basically like, it's like rocket jumping for hipsters. Um, and this has that feel to it, that kind of like, we're just going to load into a server and this track looks impossible. And you're trying to try to find out how to it. And it was doing that and sort of definitely coming last, but kind of making my way through a track like that, that I realized how many, how much finesse there is in like the movement mechanics and like jumping from surface to surface with your rocket car, all of this stuff. And then I think, um, if I feel like, uh, it's not necessarily a criticism, but I feel like the single player campaign as it's initially presented buries that lead a little bit. It doesn't introduce jumping from surface to surface until very deep into it. It's not especially long. It's like mm. a 90 minute, two hour to play through it sort of thing. But you do definitely kind of like have to play through a lot of basically just driving forwards at speed through a exciting environment, which is not a bad thing before you get to like the really technical stuff. And I think that's probably a, a good thing because it means that if the other stuff sounds intimidating, then you have a big run up. Um, but it does mean that I think its best features don't appear to later in that campaign. Uh, there are other things like sometimes tracks have like lasers or buzz saws in them. And if you run into, sometimes you run into an obstacle, you just blow up. But if you run into them, they carve up your car in a one-to-one way with the direction of the attack. Mm. And then you keep going. <laughs> so it's like, if you go completely in half, you're a bike now. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, if you get cut sort of like diagonally across the middle, that's fucking weird. How a car work? Don't really go in a circle, <laughs> but you're stuck like this now. And there's a button you can press to blow yourself up. But like, right. yeah. <laughs> Um, it's hard being a car, isn't it? It is hard being a car. Um, but it's a surprising amount of effort to put into a, like, destruction system where surely almost everyone who has that happen to them is going to... Well, because sometimes... Oh, so the, other, so the other part of that mechanic is if you go through a checkpoint, the same ones that cool you down, they fully repair the car as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you're flinging through can the air and you it? happen to get sliced in half and you can kind of finesse it into the <laughs> gate, then you've kind of styled it out. That's, that's really cool. Um, this, that's, this sounds great. It's great. I really like it. And then so then, then there's loads more to it. So there's like... And then after sort of that, there's what's called arcade mode, basically, which is like, mm. um, I think it's called sprints, which is a great idea. They're basically extremely short levels that are full of bullshit in a good way. Like, so it's like, this is extremely short, but full of obstacles. Mm. Um, and there's, and there's, uh, 
I'm getting it wrong. Maybe they're challenges. There's, there's a couple. Then there's sort of traditional time trial runs through developer built levels. And there's loads of stuff that I really like. Like whenever you load one of those levels, it will just download five ghosts, uh, which is a great sentence, um, from I think your friends list primarily. And then if it can't find things in your friends list from the internet generally, just to give you other people to race against. Mm. So it's like you can't interact with them at all. But like rather than having to opt in to seeing other players' best times, it just downloads like a selection of ghosts for you. And because there's like bronze, silver and gold time you know, thresholds mm. for each stage. It means that like, I think based on watching it, I think it picks like a couple of bronze, a couple of silver and a couple of gold. So it feels like you have a pack to race against and they're other players. So even when you're not playing a multiplayer, you feel the presence of other people. And that's a really cool way of completely avoiding having to do AI <laughs> because you just get to see like, yeah. obviously it's people who finish the track, I think. So you see some people screw up and leave their mistakes in because mm. you had to restart. But it's a really nice feature. Mm. And it is like just, you know, a very full featured, like I, I've been booting, I, I think I've been playing it for about a week now. And it's, it's a really good to sort of boot up and play a couple of tracks nice. thing. And obviously this, this medium podcast is not great for explaining why it looks nice or why the music's great. Um, but they are and it is. And the, uh, the other thing is that when you get out of the single player, which has its very specific aesthetic, um, both player made maps and in those time trial kind of modes, you get loads of really surprising kind of changes in art style and stuff. Oh, cool. And that's just a really cool thing to encounter. And often like, you know, you, like you go from like these kind of like cyber landscapes and, and neon kind of wastelands and things to suddenly trying to navigate a haunted house, which has its own soundtrack hmm. and has mechanics that don't appear anywhere else to do with like fake outs and kind of portals because the level the cool thing is that like those checkpoints i've been mentioning it's at the track creator's discretion to choose what they look like so a gameplay thing is like sometimes checkpoints are really visible and they span the whole map and you can see when they're coming sometimes they are uh, they're, they're a small gate that you have to try and go through in order to gain the benefit of the checkpoint sometimes they're invisible so you just have to trust that there will be one and if there isn't, then you have to kind of learn that. It changes the the feel of the track in a really interesting way. It's really good, basically. Um, I'm 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 glad that it it turned out as good as it did because it's based on a proven thing. But yeah, it sounds great. I'm just gonna play this. Sounds awesome. Um, but it did like when you told me about it. Like, maybe think about Trackmania. That mm. game should have taken over the world. Mm. It was fantastic. Like, it was really fun. It's kind of like Micro Machines. And it was the, the racing game that anyone could play, right? It was the racing game. You didn't need to know anything about racing to enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and they would, like, run on a 486 and look incredible. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly right. And it had all these kind of user-created tools that let you people build insane tracks. Um, and then it just seemed to... They, I think they just fucked up the business model at one point where yeah. they, they released a new track menu and charged twenty pounds for it when mm. it, it would have been the best free to play. I got the impression racer. that it did re like it did reasonable well over time, right. but I think they also got quite distracted with. I think they were bought by Ubisoft at one point, mm. and they also got distracted by Shoot Mania, which oh, didn't yeah. do oh, yeah. anything yeah. really. Again, one of my earliest press trips. Hmm. Yeah, track menu is legit. Actually, there was um, there definitely has been some free track menus. Um, and or track mania is the correct Latin <laughs> word. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I, I remember I can't remember if I reviewed it or if I was doing doing something on it for PC Gamer, but um, one of the ones I played, you sort of the currency bought you like tokens, and you could I think you just play the track as much as you like, but if you wanted to log a score, you had to pay a token to play, mm-hmm. and then that's the run that counts, and so uh, you couldn't just sort of reset unlimited. Um, and that I was like. 
the amount of tension that added to that run was, <laughs> you know, extreme and made me way more invested and way more interested in it. And it actually almost kind of worked. It was kind of a, an interesting system to make one particular attempt at a track really, really count. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Shall we do some? Oh, <laughs> hey. interference! Shall we do some questions from questions? Why do I make that? Or Tom will pretend to be a little horse. <laughs> yeah, this is some questions. Was that a sound check sort of thing? We certainly little haven't horse had from all the talking. Yeah, oh, any whiskeys between uh, the? Yeah, hasn't been like a forty-minute break uh, that we spent getting increasingly sad about how much time has transpired <laughs> in the just world. Generally, time. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> about that. Good what about um, time. Our first question, no one answered my question, but that's fine. My first question, our first question comes from Steve, who writes, Dear Crate and Switch, a few weeks ago, Valve dropped a surprise on the Linux gaming community in the shape of Proton. Instead of having to run Windows-only games through various compatibility layers to play them, Steam for Linux now has them built in. This makes them both easier to play and show up in the developers' stats as Linux players. Of course, the community is split on whether this is a good thing. The pessimists think this will destroy native Linux gaming. The developers will not just bother directly supporting Linux if their new games just work via Proton. The optimists think it's the boost we need to be taken seriously, as all the dual-booting virtual machine-running gamers will start playing via Proton instead and show developers the true number of Linux gamers. I'd like to ask the panel what they think. I used to be firmly in the no tucks, no bucks camp, <laughs> but I bought 50 quid worth of Windows games this month, including Heat Signature, because they Yay. work with Proton. Keep up the good pod, Steve. This sounds like a good thing, right? This is, yeah, this is news to me, I have to say. <laughs> I, like, somebody had mentioned Proton to me and I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And uh, I didn't realize this was like a big Steam-wide thing they'd done Um and it sounds great to me as a developer who doesn't want to have to go through the pain of supporting Linux. There was, so in terms of Linux support and like developers willingness to do it, um, there was a bit <coughs> of an artificial spike in, in native Linux support around the time the humble bundle became a big thing because that is why gunpoint is on Linux and, um, and Mac. Um, and for heat signature, it hasn't been a, a huge priority because the actual like, sales you get from having a Linux version don't really justify the development time, at least at my scale. Um, but uh, back when Humble Bundle was new, you had to have a Linux version to be in a Humble Bundle, and also being in a Humble Bundle was one of the biggest deals in the world of indie gaming. And these days, it is less so, and Steam sales are much more so, mm. and so the balance is such that it actually doesn't make as much financial sense. Um and so that's, I think there was like a big spike in lots and lots of people doing native Linux versions. And now maybe it's trading off a bit. Um, at the same time, the tools to do it have got a bit easier. But then the issue is that like just sort of creating a Linux version is not where the work is. The work is then you launch that and then a million people with a million different distros will come back to you and say, oh, it breaks for this reason or it doesn't work for that reason. Mm. Um, so to me, this sounds like a good thing. <laughs> That was a, a really good informed answer that I feel like, I feel like I've learned things from that. But what I really want to know is it, is it Linux? Is it Linux? Or is it Linu? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the votes from the, the panel. version. <laughs> so Linux. I grew up saying Linux 
And then it was only when corrected that I started saying Linux. And as you will know, in pre-reading this question while we were talking about them before we started recording, <laughs> I said it three different ways. So I was, I, I've always said Linux, but if you ask me to name the creator of Linux, I would say Linus Torvalds. I think it's Linus. Okay. But I might be wrong about that. Hmm. My only comment about this is that whenever anyone uses the phrase, uh, boost we need to be taken seriously in a kind of non-life-threatening circumstance, <laughs> I think of Arrested Development. <laughs> Specifically, the we demand to be taken seriously <laughs> magician's picture. Like, regardless of context, that's not supposed to be shade on, on the Linux community. I just <laughs> can't not think of that <laughs> yeah. when you say that. Yeah. I just think of that picture. And I'm sorry, but that's where my mind goes. I think if you say no tucks, no bucks, you're already a little bit, like, up for the because bit of Because that, yeah, yeah, the so, that makes me think of the, the aftershade, like, the, 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 the deodorant slash perfect few man in the bogs of every slightly dodgy marginally upscale <laughs> nightclub <laughs> in <laughs> middle right. england god yeah <laughs> um but no i'm glad this is easier to do because yeah, it, sounds, it sounds good to me yeah i don't understand precisely why people will be annoyed yeah i mean i i, I would say in, in in you know i i completely understand the appeal and utility of of linux like i have a linux laptop that i've been using for press trips for years because it's mm. very good for that kind of thing um but you know, I'm not someone who's ever tried to game on that kind of system, partly because professionally, like, without a Windows PC to play games on, you cannot do the job. Yeah. What we've done for a long time. As well as saying that. And like, also, sorry, fuck Windows. Like, <laughs> yeah, as, I mean, as, entirely as, fuck as Windows. As an aside, yeah, you know. And that yeah. is, um, as well as saying Valve are very keen to support Linux gaming. Like, they would like Linux gaming to be a much bigger thing than yeah. it is. Yeah. It would be great for them if it was, uh, and not for, not because they have any, like skin in in the game specifically but just because they don't like being so dependent on windows like mm. if microsoft do some terrible thing tomorrow it could fuck yeah, with yeah. valve a lot and so they would love it if linux was um a bigger part of the market godspeed linu tell <laughs> <laughs> are you the only person <laughs> i'm starting it right here Lanou. it's happening now congratulations lenu community <laughs> demand to be taken seriously now <laughs> i'm really sorry yeah. everyone with Linux. we can't be we can't create um we can't we can't create or impose lenu without without also introducing sure? window oh window hmm. this has gotten weird and silly oh, okay. let's move on let's to move this on. uh this uh email uh which is from city slick sparrow who writes, Bountiful greetings, dear Kale and Rhubarb. Whenever people on the internet dig up the topic of good writing in games, a crop of discussions around plot-heavy, narrative-driven games, especially those overripe with dialogue, is sure to follow. This kind of bugs me, as fiction is not the only form of writing we of a species is cultivated. Do you know of any games that are lush with good writing, but focus on neither tale-telling nor dialogue, have you had the pleasure of biting into a juicy bit of flavoured text that is not rooted in story or world building? So Dark Souls is forbidden fruit here. Uh, we're all excited about games as stories, but where can one find the seeds of games as poetry or games as straightforwardly discursive essays? Thanks for the delicious pea pods, a city slug sparrow. So this is tough because games tend not to be documentaries, which maybe this is bad. Maybe that's not a good thing. But yeah, so it's tough to think of examples of um, games that aren't fiction. But, well. I, I, mean, I will say, there's... I mean, 
uh, games do this when they move outside of language. So Proteus is a game which has a story that forms through sensation, but there's no kind of meaning attached necessarily. Yeah, but there's also no writing. Yeah, yeah this person's asking exactly. specifically for writing. But I, is... I, I kind of not sure like, i can't even quite imagine the game that well so there's like so for example if you if you enjoyed assassin's creeds 2 through revelations you will have enjoyed oh, did, yeah. danny wallace explaining italian architecture to you <laughs> there yeah. you go that happened okay yeah <laughs> that was extremely boring <laughs> uh i will say that there is a a great art to writing tutorial text, which mm. is non-fiction okay. text in games. And yeah, that that's is, technically that's true. Yeah. That yeah. is yeah. virtually poetry in terms of like how <laughs> fucking, how few words you have and how much meaning you have to impart and how the margin for error is just like, you have to get every fucking word precisely right. I've got to, or, I've got to interrupt you here, Tom, and say this is the, my, this my, might be the biggest this take is my you've favorite, ever had. This is my favorite Tom Francis moment of 2018. <laughs> Tutorial text is is a kind of poetry. Poetry is like the, the poetry metric is just like like amount of meaning divided by number of words, right? That's how you calculate it. As I understand, I guess. It. <laughs> Shit. Like, oh no! Like all my fucking English lit grad what neurons the fuck is the point just of my fucking degree? exploded, <laughs> and then you were right, which is. Tom Francis just picked up my degree, oh. staked it through the heart, and it turned to dust. Yeah. I hate this. I hate that, because you have like a dual kind of, you dual spec in both like sciences <laughs> and arts and humanities, which makes you overpowered in a kind of tradition. <laughs> and in particularly, like, what was it, maths and philosophy? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Shit. So the two that destroy the others in their own discipline, yeah, that shit is broken. Tom you can't have repeat. philosophy because it kills all the other humanities. You can't have maths because it kills the other scientists. <laughs> <laughs> Sciences, I mean. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. yeah, shit. So yeah, so I, was about to make, I was about to make this argument that game, like that, it's difficult to do po- poetics in games, and also, you know, adhere to this. The question is uh, constraint about it being nonfiction, because poetics inevitably lead to a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a heightened sense of language or a, a sort of evocative space where I mean, fiction is a necessary component. But then Tom fucking ruined that. <laughs> What is meaning divided by length? Then <laughs> <And> poetry <laughs> equals poems. <laughs> this is, uh, I'm partly parroting like a character from an Ian M. Banks book, mm. uh, I think Use of Weapons, where right. like, oh, yeah, yeah. the main character is like a warrior who decides to learn to be a poet and just kind of completely misunderstands what poetry is and just thinks it's like, oh, you just want to like say emotions in the fewest words possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes there's lots of words, but they're all very meaningful. <laughs> Yeah. But it's definitely, like, the thing tutorial text and poetry have in common, at least, is you have to choose your words very carefully, and you have to get each one exactly right, or, mm. or it's disastrous. I, th- I feel um, satisfied with the answer, but also despair. <laughs> <laughs> Sadness, but hooray for skeleton. A counterpoint would be that uh, tutorial text, the way you get it right is you endlessly test it and just change it if it doesn't seem to have the desired mm. effect, which probably is not how poetry is made. That's how the best poems are perhaps made. Who knows? No one's tried that I yet. I mean, yeah, I think they should be open to it. Interesting. Have you good art project? I feel like... Crowdsource that. You know, like, it makes you think of, like... Oh, man. Like... So the thing I would say about that isn't true of 
poetry isn't true of tutorial text that is true of poetry <laughs> is poetry <laughs> we're struggling to find a difference <laughs> poetry frequently achieves its aims through inference rather than what is literally said mm. and you cannot mm. do that with yes, tutorial yes, text like that, that is, <laughs> like like thank god those three years of my life were saved not it. in vain. <laughs> saved it. Like, you know, if... Um, saved it, sure, everybody. <laughs> it's like, rescued. It, you can't be like, um, you know, press X, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, did you jump? That's interesting. That <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean? Um, if you didn't jump, could you have? <laughs> we don't know. Uh, that's not how oh, that works. Oh, I would love to play the game with this tutorial <laughs> so much. <laughs> Imagine yeah. the Wordsworth tutorial. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean to go high and then be back on the ground? <laughs> what does it? What does that mean? <laughs> Two paths diverged. The yellow wood. I went left because that was where the arrow was pointing. <laughs> I have pressed the X button that was on your controller. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> Uh, it was so tactile, <laughs> so visceral, so, so jump, <laughs> so jump. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we, we had a lot of fun with this tutorial. <laughs> uh, but to bring back to the question, I'm, I'm trying to imagine um, a video game plot delivered in the way as as described in this question, like with no well, kind of like specific indication of what is happening. But destiny. <laughs> But that had like no, it didn't. Oh, oh, it was on a website, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it was basically poetry delivered on trading cards that you unlocked by firing a was gun it? enough times at the face of a skeleton. Was it? I yeah, mean, this is this is poetry that you could only dream of previously. But that, that that's pure law, right? That's pure background law. But is it? Because it's very yeah. because <laughs> no, because it's delivered, it's practically in verse. Like that stuff is like it's highly stylized. It's not it doesn't rhyme, but it's delivered in a biblical kind of meter, mm. like the Book of the Worm from from the Taken King. That uh, It's basically just That's the space... D- delicious the, apocryphal the text. The space skeleton Bible is what that is, yeah. right? Like, it is it is written in that mythic style. It mm. has the, the cadence of, like, sort of oral storytelling or, you know, like, an, like the Odyssey, for example, like Homeric kind of verse doesn't necessarily rhyme, but it's got that kind of rhythm to it. And it's technically know. not in the game. And it's technically not in the game. <laughs> it's not documentary. That's... That's important mm. to note, but I do feel like the questioner maybe imposed one too many restrictions on trying to find other kinds <laughs> yeah, of writing some games yeah. when they said it must also be true. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I think, I think it's interesting to try and figure out from a, somebody from a fiction point of view, and I appreciate we're getting off piece on the question, but like where, uh, fail betters games fall into this schema because they are extremely rich when it comes to writing, but they're not especially plot heavy. No, that's a good point. Like they're very, and they're, you know, they're very poetic in their language. That's the kind of thing that defines Telltale games. It's I like think. A, a texture rather than a, yeah, kind of like it's design. a feel. Mm. Um, it's one of the reasons they're specifically appropriate to the subject matter, I think, because, you know, um, uh, it's one of, maybe I've quoted this before, but I think about it a lot when I think about game writing. Um, one of Lovecraft's letters to his circle of writers, I think it's a letter to Robert Barlow. He says that the kind of, the great kind of, he says it in a very Lovecraft way, so it doesn't make any sense. But what he means is the kind of, the great kind of desirable quality of, um, like cosmic horror isn't, 
isn't plot, but atmosphere. Mm. That really the story is effective if it simply kind of takes a certain sense of dread or a certain sense of the sublime, but in a bad way, which is basically all cosmic horror is. Mm. Um, it's Wordsworth seeing a big hill and going, wow, yeah, but that big yeah. hill's a huge octopus. <laughs> That's all of cosmic horror. Um, that, um, that feeling like the atmosphere is, and I think atmosphere is tremendously important to game writing. Like, I think that's often underlooked. I think dismounting, dis- dismounting, discounting something as law is sort of when it's simply exposition. It's like, and then the bad king, Stephen, came along and he made the good swords go in the ground and now we've got to find them. That's law. Hmm. Uh, atmosphere is when you say exactly that. Uh, but it, it sounds, but you then think it's cool. Is it, some, <laughs> is it sometimes that, um, it, it says that stuff, but it's hard to fetch? Yeah. yeah, it's hard to get at but that. It's because it's evocative, right? It. It's why it makes a bad tutorial text. It's like... But that's what, the, this is why Dark Souls work. Yeah. Like, oh, no, the... No, no, no. <laughs> yes, we got back there. Specifically banned us I banned us, and I, I'm censoring myself right now. <laughs> no, no, keep going, because this person, they banned us from fiction in order to keep us from Dark Souls. <laughs> but Dark Souls is very good at this. So. It, it's really good at it. And also, um, oh, God... So I, I, I really apologise for what I'm about to say because it is possibly the worst hot take. But <laughs> I'm about to draw a through line from Dear Esther to Dark Souls. <laughs> go for it. I thought you were going to go from Mallory to Dark Souls. Which is- mm, no. Uh, so Dear Esther randomises uh, its narrow, its kind of quotations over yes, it does. Yeah. what you uh, what you find, and then you piece it together out of order into a kind of I know where you're going with this into a <laughs> into a kind of material <laughs> texture that forms a, uh, the interesting thing about uh, Dear Esther is that when you come to the end of it there kind of is a story but really what you've actually experienced is the emotional context as a kind of loose ambient thing that you're in right mm-hmm. it's not it's not like oh and then Poirot solved the mystery and now I feel good it's about like existing in a kind of emotional moment that yeah. is created by it's poetic it's poetic it's poetic um, and Doc Souls randomises drop rates and <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit of a jump uh, yes okay <laughs> uh, but drop rates with Doc Souls like every drop rates are law in Doc Souls because every item has a description and some of them are useless and some of them are pointless some of them are funny some of them are jokes and occasionally they're useful and you don't know at all when you're encountering them what is a joke what is just a, a, an ordinary description of an item and what is an important law point and only uh, after you've played it maybe like once through maybe twice or three times do you piece that together and it becomes this textured world that also again the specifics of the plots of who killed who or yeah. did what it's not important. It's it's the tr- the sheer tragedy of the entire situation that you absorb, and you're not. And that type of storytelling is not interested in the hero's journey. It's not interested in act structures. It's interested in putting you into an emotional moment. Yeah, uh, that mm. represents the world. And I think that Diaster and Dark Souls do that. Mm. Both. I think. I think. Yeah. I think specifically they they also achieve like uh, encouraging kind of re-readings of the same situations which is something they both do and they, they also like, leave so much room for interpretation which is yeah. another kind of literary thing i'd right? say like intuited intuited storytelling and also accreted storytelling where you end up kind of getting a gathering sense of something mm. through re-encountering it a lot of different ways mm. um and and yeah. both games leave a lot of space for you to kind of yeah that breathing room i think is, is super interesting to kind of, because that leaves that gives you the room to bring your own experience and your own perspectives into it and that deepens it as well i think yes i mean i I genuinely think that like um 
critical reading is a i mean like so literally this is the talk i gave at egx was right. critical reading as game mechanic mm. like that's something i tried to introduce to hackmud i think it's under underexplored because game storytelling tends to be in the service of mechanics in the form that this is why you need to go and do the thing that the game mechanics are but i think learning to read critically and interpret language critically can be game-like or can have game-like rewards if you structure mm. it properly so that's like literally we just did an update for hackmud that's designed to achieve exactly this so I guess maybe I'll link to that talk, but like, you know, this is, I think a, a thing like games can achieve this through writing and getting writing can be game. Like it's just, yeah. and I, I do think it's the thing. It's a, a form of writing that games deliver that f- films or it, other mediums struggle to do. The same some, so some do what? like, I think, I think, you know, there's so many great films that have ambiguous endings. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, sure. so I'd yeah. say like, you know, or even not films, but like, you know, like the ending of the Sopranos, and I won't spoil it, but like it totally achieved its aims hmm. as a bit of storytelling and writing, right? Because it created this uh, ambiguity and this sort of discursive environment around that thing. It doesn't need an answer. I, I mean, oh God, I feel like we need to move on to another question because it's such a big topic for me. <laughs> but like, I feel like, um, I think I've said this in the podcast before, but I feel like there's a, there's a sort of a common sense that sort of stories aren't finished unless they're fully answered. Um, that maybe has always been around, but feels like quite a modern thing and, uh, has a relationship with fandom in certain ways and, and has a relationship with the way stories get condemned or elevated based on what they do and don't answer. And I, I would always sort of defend the right of stories to be ambiguous. Mm. And I think games have struggled with that because, and I think games are also responsible for maybe training a certain audience to expect answers in, in a particular format. Um, but actually like, uh, games are often at their best when they're embracing the ambiguity of language and storytelling in your place within a system yeah, that surrounds I, you. I, uh, I'd never argue against an um, ambiguous ending, but I, uh, I think the, we talked about atomic storytelling earlier. Um, like Dark Souls is, is genuinely atomic storytelling. Like it's generally like little n- like nodes that you have to assemble like a jigsaw puzzle for yourself. And then you bring your own interpretation to that. And I don't think that many mediums can do that as well as games. No, no, exactly. This does not fulfill a lot of the conditions of the question, but I want to give a shout out to one of my favorite uh, bits of writing in a video game that is sort of anti, it's it's simultaneously exposition and also anti-exposition, which is in Bioshock. Uh, It was not impossible to build Rapture under the sea. It was impossible to build it anywhere else, which fundamentally does not answer the question that's trying to answer, but just at the end of it, you're like, oh yeah, cool. (laughs) And it's totally like, it gives you atmosphere. It doesn't give you a narrative logic to how this place was built. <laughs> it yeah. refuses to answer that question and just says, we're but, not going to answer that. We're just going to remind you <laughs> but it's how important but it is. It's, very effective it's, it's really good. It yeah. establishes exactly the world in which this takes place. It's the propaganda, yeah. right? It's the, it's the endless propaganda of the project that you're bombarded with. Partly, but it's also like, it's also functionally like this is a game that takes place in the realm of ideas really mm. more than anything else. It's not like, you know, you know, suspend your disbelief when it comes to the physical construction of the city, mm. wherever the city takes place and consider that this takes place in a realm where cities are more like expressions of philosophies, which is kind of true anyway. Right. And it's sort of like some, some, some slider has been adjusted mm. between, you know, what prompts the development of a city is it an idea or is it a set of practical circumstances mm. and Bioshock, and its sequel definitely take place in a world where that's heavily weighted towards idea and heavily weighted away from practicality. <laughs> like we don't build a city because oh, there's a river here. It's good for trade. We build a city because I believe 
that all men should be free to put a big slug on them and learn lightning powers. <laughs> that's why we're under the sea. <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> like, video games are good. Yeah. <laughs> in conclusion, video games are video good. Games. <laughs> oh, yeah, we got actually, into that one. That was no, good. but it was good. But that exact thing, that that exact temptation to go like, let's ground this in the practical. I think is a weakness of uh, maybe maybe simply video games generally. But like, it's it's really nice whenever games break out of that and mm. simply like embrace. You know, ideas, right? poetics. Like, yeah. oh god, I've got so many opinions about this. I need to shut the fuck up. But like. <laughs> Yeah. Also, yep. mythology is allowed to just be mythology sometimes. It doesn't have to be explained. So, um, uh, what's the name of the person who asked this question? What was uh, the, it the, was, uh, I moved on, I, I preloaded the next question, so give me a second. It was Sick City Slick Sparrow. So, thank you, uh, Mrs. Bapus. Sparrow <laughs> yeah. for uh, opening that massive enormous can of worms for all of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can of wormholes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, next question comes from David, who writes, Hi all, in episode 247, Tom S. described the bolters in Warhammer 40,000 Gladius. You better fucking believe I did. As machine guns. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> One of Tom's complaints about the game was that many of the units were rather samey and that they tended to do chip damage that made fights take forever. Correct. As a lapsed 40k player, my ears perked up when I heard bolters being glossed. As machine guns. I know that Tom S. is well aware of 40k lore and was just describing the weapon for the benefit of listeners who may not be steeped in Games Workshop madness. After all, not every weapon deserves insect glaive level explanations. (laughs) Kudos, Chris. You thought this question was dunking on Tom. It's dunking on me secretly. (laughs) Double dunk. But this simple description reminded me that 40 games, 40k games have often failed to live up to their lore. Give me 40 mm. games and a wizard. <laughs> oh God, not again. <laughs> After all, the bolter is less of a machine gun and more of a mini howitzer that fires large war projectiles that explode inside the target. GW themselves are guilty of failing to live up to their own lore since a shot from a bolter will take out an unarmored human about 66% of the time <laughs> in the tabletop game. Okay. My question is this. What games have disappointed you by not living up to their law? Conversely, what games have displayed a good marriage of law and mechanics? Bonus question. Include a pun on the word law in your response. I was unable to come up with one for my question. I hate to see an opportunity for punning go to waste. Uh, regards, David. I'm going to steal a pun for myself here because mm. I called my talk at EGX Law and Disorder, which was a pun on law. And then I realized that that was... So actually, I had a bit of a moment ruined for me because my clicker didn't work. And so I was supposed to flip onto the slide with the actual name of the talk on, but didn't work on time. So it ended up being extremely labored. If you watch the video, you'll <laughs> notice this. But the actual title of the talk, talk was Law. Huh. What is it good for? Occasionally, mm. something. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's my pun. And then we're on with the question. So, um, yeah, I, I want to thank, defend David. yourself. Th- thank David for, gi- <laughs> for giving me the benefit of the doubt. Uh, cause I do indeed understand what the bolter is supposed to be. So it's a little artillery piece that, you know, giant so that, men carry. We're talking about like the space marine standard. Just sort of the thing. bog standard. Cause there's also the heavy bolter, right? Which is a, which is, you know, f- fucks more shit up. I mean, a rapid bigger. fire howitzer. I mean, yeah. So yeah, every, Every single like bolt that comes out of a bolter is is a miniature warhead because space marines are enormous. They're like one and a half times the size of a normal human. That's very big, Tom. It's enormous. It's not as big as like a big bear, but it's bigger than a normal man. It's about the size of an American (laughs) football player or something like that. And and they carry around like it's weird. I've been watching American football a lot recently, and um, 
they kind of are space marines actually like it's weird because <laughs> they've just got the armor and they're kind of the way they're kind of built it's weird anyway uh, <laughs> they, they 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 take part in a turn-based game <laughs> <laughs> and and just beat the shit out of each other yeah, yeah. absolutely um but yes the, the bolter is amazing uh the bolter is i completely agree with david that the, um bolters are it is david right Fuck. yes um that bolters are not represented correctly in most warhammer games but i would say that space marine does this very well and i will talk about the space, beloved marine, space marine space marine every podcast that i am on because <laughs> uh it does loads of stuff with 40k fiction very well without the budget that it really needed to actually deliver the fantasy yeah um so getting a hedgehog uh hedgehog fuck hedgehog uh, <laughs> sorry sonic the hedgehog <laughs> Sonic the Headshot um, would be an interesting game. Get your head- Sonic the Headshot. <laughs> Shooting an orc in the head with a bolter as a Space Marine captain in Space Marine is exactly what should happen when, you know, is exactly what you, should, you know, would expect <laughs> to happen based on the fiction. So that nailed it. Everything else have fucked it up. Yeah. Dawn of War does not really sell the, the impact of those shots because it, like, no. as an RTS, it kind of has to have them just miss each other a lot. Yeah. There just has to be a lot of, of attrition that is. Yeah. Not, I mean, that, not true to the fiction. Yeah. There's, I don't really know if this, this qualifies, but, um, there was, I had a moment playing Sins of the Solar Empire, which sort of felt like it arose from game mechanics, but it felt like fiction. It felt like something you'd, you'd write about in a sort of sci-fi short story where I, I probably have told the story in the podcast long, long ago. So I apologize if you're a long time listener. Um, but I, uh, you can build a sort of like, uh, a weapon of such scale that it is it has to be built in orbit and uh it can fire a projectile at i think any range you can just shoot shoot literally Mm. anything in the galaxy and it can also destroy a planet (laughs) like it is a devastating end game weapon but uh it the speed at which the projectile travels is kind of not remarkable and it doesn't go through like warp gates or anything it just fires you know just travels across space at, at sub light speeds mm. and most of the other transport you're doing is kind of you're warping between systems you're walking between these things and so i had shot at an enemy planet with one of these systems wait no it wasn't me <laughs> i read this story someone else did this and i read their story sorry <laughs> it almost took credit for it um uh, it wasn't me doing this i read someone else's story and uh they had fired this uh, this cannon at a distant enemy world and uh then this was like early on in the game and then they had expanded their empire and eventually got to the point where they expanded their empire to the point that they took over the planet that they had originally fired the shot at. <laughs> was it still heading towards months it? Months and months later, yeah. <laughs> the, the shot is still heading towards the planet that they since colonized. They just kind of forgot that that was heading that way. And so it ended up destroying their own planet, <laughs> which just feels like something a sort of sci-fi fiction race would do. That's very good. That's extremely Sins good. Sins is a very good game. An uh, underrated game. It, Sins is, it is very mm. good. And also, uh, I want to thank Tom for uh, stopping me from going into a, a massive diatribe about bolters and, <laughs> and their respective benefits. Yeah. It's very good, though. And and Space Marine by Relic is a very good game. <laughs> and you were right to go to bat for it forever. <laughs> I just want another one. It's never going to happen, but I'm always <laughs> going to talk about it. Yeah, I don't know. Relic might be working on it right now. Our next question comes from uh travis who writes hello i keep bees in my backyard and i make mead <laughs> with their honey <laughs> this is a great start uh, so on board for whatever comes you're, next. you're my favorite questioner already i have just I bottled my nicest batch yet 
Would you like some? Oh my god. Yes. Fuck yes. If Pippa's on the pod, do you have any recommendations for adding berries and whatnot to mead? She isn't, and I don't know if she... I don't know, I've never known Can if you make berries to mead? Is that a thing? I know vodka is good for this, but... Uh, I'm gonna say yeah. Throw some, <laughs> throw some blackberries in there. Yeah. No, some black currants. Blackberries are not as good. Uh, and that's, um, from Travis, who writes, PS, please try to limit yourself to a modest quantity of bee puns. Um, this is a very straightforward question. The answer is, for maybe the first time in Craig Carver <laughs> history, yes. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. But oh, I want to keep my own bees and make mead. That sounds like the best existence <laughs> that I could have. <laughs> I, the, the relationship between honey and mead was only made clear to me when in Skyrim I was assigned to assassinate somebody who was allergic to honey, and one of the ways to do it is to feed them mead. <laughs> How do you feed someone mead forcefully? Well, I never found out because before I could get to them, I was informed I completed the quest. And then when I arrived there, I found a body, a dead horse, and a bear. <laughs> and I was like, I like this game. <laughs> Fantastic. Did I say Skyrim just then? Yes. I meant Oblivion. Okay. Good. Still a good game. Not as good as Skyrim. <laughs> Both good yep. games. Do we have anything else to add on the subject of please send us mead? Other than- I, mean, I, I don't think we've ever provided anyone an avenue to send us anything. We have. Have we? We've had reader provided, listener even provided gin. We've had listener provided oh. whiskey. Yeah, we had a fancy whiskey at Christmas. Yeah, we, do, uh, do we yeah. have a, like a peer box or? Uh, no, but you know, DM me. There are ways. Can, okay, okay. I, I can, I can make things happen, don't worry. Yeah, DM Chris. <laughs> or just email, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Give but, yeah. us the mead. Use a dead drop location <laughs> for delicious artisanal mead. That's the most Crate and Crowbar drink, perhaps. There was a time in the past when we were thinking about like podcast sponsors, and we did genuinely kind of canvas think about local beer, ale. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, people, um, but I'm glad to be a, a non-ad supported podcast. Yeah, although I think there would be. Some sort of bitter irony in us advertising booze midway through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I do enjoy how people manage to make like in podcast adverts kind of fun and, you know, make yeah. it, you know, part of the podcast vibe. But, uh, imagine having to do that. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, so, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, to actually do kind of do it anyway. The money would have to be very good. <laughs> Thank you, Wix. Our final question comes from Daniel, who writes, A month or two back, you you mentioned that Americans misunderstand the use or weight of the word wanker (laughs) in British culture. Can you elaborate? It's my favorite question. And that's from Daniel in Iowa. Very good question. It's about 512 grams, but I can't convert to imperial. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what's an imperial versus a metric wanker? (laughs) Uh, Hmm, so... I don't know where to start with this. It's well, quite... I, it's hard to know. I mean, so I think so as, 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 in terms of first principles, I think Americans tend to receive the word wanker as like primarily a funny British word, right? Isn't that how British people see it <laughs> as well? <laughs> exactly. No, because well, so uh, so I think like I'm, I'm kind of I may well be wrong about this, but I don't think America. I think Britain has more words for insulting someone based on the frequency and or intensity of their masturbatory habits <laughs> that America does. Okay. I can think of jerk off, for example, right, as right, an American right. insult mm. that references the same I thing. Don't hear that very However, well, we gone. have both wanker and tosser, uh, which yeah, is already uh, twice as mm. many. I don't, I've not heard tosser for years. No, but it's certainly a thing people say. What about toss pot? 
Tosspot as well. That's different. Tosspot. Adaptive. Nice. I don't know. Yeah, I think Tosspot is like, it's the, it's the, it's the, the D, it's the defanged version of Tosser, I think. <laughs> it doesn't kind of like, it's using pot as an intensifier rather than sir, which is <laughs> traditionally. The ultimate intensifier. Yeah, well, yeah, like. What about like, you know, Chundermeister? <laughs> That's just somebody throws up a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's this thing I just made up. <laughs> it could just be a British, uh, you know, this is the great thing about British slang. You could just make some shit up. I think that's the thing. I think that's also has a, um, maybe a, a devaluing effect on how Americans receive the word wanker because so much British slang appears to be totally interchangeable with other British slang. Yeah, well, quite. It, and because it is, that it masks the words that actually have some kind of meaning. Yeah, so say, I, 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 I would say, Tied today, I'm just a massive chundermeister. That's yeah. like, you know, that's interchangeable with any given <laughs> sentence. Exactly. English language. Well, I like, feel like you, our you... use of wanker is comparable to American use of douche. Would that be Possibly, fair? Possibly, yeah. It's like a particular kind of, of like, person who you're not really saying they're like an idiot. You're not really saying like, like they're evil. It's just like they're sort of full of themselves and they're behaving in a, in a way yeah. that's really obnoxious. And the use of the word connotates mm. genuine dislike. Like it's not, it's not like, if you, if, like, tosser is milder. Like, if you say you're a wanker, it's, you do mean you don't like this person. Mm. It's not like, if you say you're a douche, you, you know, it's like, to call a friend that in a funny way, you have to be really good friends. Mm. Like, yeah. maybe that's a good way of measuring the severity of an insult word. It's like, how good friends you have to be with someone Before to say it in a way that it's like, it we off. all understand that it's, it's fun. I've not heard anyone call a wanker for a long time. I think that, I think this slang is out of date. I have used. I think it's done. Uh, I've definitely used the uh, term wanky to describe... Oh, like, that's a good one. I don't yeah. want to say it that way because it sounds kind of wanky. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, so the discussion that... Uh, I think douche is a really good comparison, actually. I think douche right. is about tonally the right... Yeah. Right. Douche and wanky, yep. Yeah. I'm douchey, for example. Yeah, I don't want to say it that way because it sounds a bit douchey. But it's when you say uh, Chundermeister, it really matters... Like they, they're going to take that. You really want to make this happen, Tom. But Stop trying to make Chandler happen. It's not going to happen. This podcast is just basically me trying to make fucking nonsense things happen. It's never going to work, but it's fine. Got to these things out there. Thank you for the question. Um, but I think also, like, I think, I think maybe the British usage of it is a little bit closer to its actual meaning. Mm. Because I don't think Americans call, have the word wanking, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm. Americans say jerking off, I guess. Or maybe jack off as well, you know, etc. Right? Like, I don't think I've ever heard an American, you know, refer to the act of masturbating as wanking, <laughs> but that is literally what it's called in British English. Yeah. So I, I also feel like um, I really need to change my language when I go uh, go to the US actually because uh, swear words just have massively different weight on different continents, like yeah, yeah. especially like the c word. Mm. Uh, in America is absolutely like that's one of the worst things you can say, mm. right? And I, but I'm really used in to that. Just means thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, oh, it's 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 really common here and isn't it's just not the same yeah. thing, right? But I've also heard that um, from Americans and Canadians that uh, when I swear, it sounds cleaner than it does in what? America or Canadian. Like it, it's more it's acceptable because it's yeah, it might be maybe my particular accent, but it's. Uh, it's considered like less dirty. Huh. I wonder if that's partly because like 
American swearing tends to like dwell on the vowel for a long time. Like American accents, everybody dwells on the vowel. So it's like what terrifies an American accent. Like, like fuck. yeah, you, exactly. Like you draw it out. You do that. You sound more American just doing that because that's how an American accent works. You just extend the vowel. British English tends to be very clipped in its use of vowels. Um, You're a big twat. <laughs> You're a big twat. <laughs> oh god! Exactly. I'm Whereas in in Britain we would say you are a big twat, and like <laughs> what's a twat you are? <laughs> exactly. And uh, <laughs> interesting theory, Chris. No, press and, on. And just saying that, like, we contain. You know, there's something about the. I, I'm just getting. Look, they also say it twat rather than twat, right? Yeah, twat, um, yeah. Also, I mean, like, yeah, and you know, some AO vowel shift has taken place. That what I'm saying is, towards the beginning of this question section, we risk completely devaluing uh, poetics as a concept, and I just want to bring it back <laughs> inch by inch. And if it means explaining that Americans swearing sounds dirtier because there's, they just extend every vowel, <laughs> then I'm going there. <laughs> I'm going there, I'm gonna live there and put my flag there. Jerk off. <laughs> I don't mean like, like. <laughs> I don't mean that it's necessarily that people like sound like that. So much is that. They're not Pokemon. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> if you were a Pokemon, you could only say wanker. That, that <laughs> says something about the Pokemon that you are. Because typically they can only say their own names. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> what was that conversation that we just had? That's interesting. I think we've adequately explained why the word wanker is more intense in the UK. Is it? It is though, it is. It's like a non-word, isn't it? Like, no. Of course it's a wanker. No, it's not. Like, no. well, cause. Can you, if you tell your friend, like, don't be a wanker, that's acceptable, right? Yeah. But if you say, like, oh, you wanker, you have to be quite good friends for that to be. Mm. Like, aha, ha, 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 as opposed to like, oh. <laughs> this might be regional. Funny enough, that's I actually, I th- feel like mm. it's, I think, yeah. for a given level of friendship, it's more acceptable to say you wanker than don't be a wanker. <laughs> don't be a wanker is like, I seriously believe you actually are being a wanker. Whereas just saying you're a wanker, like you wanker is like friendly. Isn't it? I don't think. Oh, we're I gonna, using it wrong. This might well be regional. I don't yeah. think we're going to untie this knot because I, I do think it's regional actually. Yeah. Like, right the and then you get to the whole, the whole like you know rabbit hole of describing something as wank, mm. which is quite complicated. Complicated, is it? Who knows? I mean, I'm three whiskeys deep, so yeah. I'm, I mean, I can't unpack this. Mm. It's too much. Well, thank you for that question. They don't have anything to add on the topic of wank. I don't wank. think so, but please, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to like crowdsource our community on this. Like, what, what does ta- wanking mean to you? Yeah, what, <laughs> <laughs> what weight does the word wank have for you, uh, in your regional capacity? So, yeah, I don't know. Yes, yeah. Or just send us questions. Should... It's all good. Yeah, please. No, please send us questions. <laughs> uh, two questions at greatandcrowbar.com. You could also tweet us. My voice is going. At Creighton Crowbar. Thanks as ever to our Patreon backers for inexplicably making this happen. You can find out more about supporting the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Creighton Crowbar. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Creighton Crowbar. And you may also find us as individuals. I'm on Twitter at C Thurston. That's C T H U R S T E N. Tom? Mm. I'm, <laughs> I'm at PCG Ludo. 
and I, Tom F, am at Pentadact, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. Thanks for listening.